What kind of faith do you need to face the fiery furnace without faltering? Furnace faith. When the trials, the difficulties, the fires of life come, when your spouse is diagnosed with dementia, when you're pregnant but they can find no heartbeat, when you lose your job and you can't pay your mortgage, when your niece drowns in the swimming pool, when fire, trial, difficulty come, when life happens, and indeed life happens to us all, we need furnace faith. Two questions for our time this morning. Number one, what is furnace faith? What is it? Number two, how do you get it? What is furnace faith and how do you get it? Let's look at these two questions from our text. First of all, what is furnace faith? Well, whatever it is, we see it here in Daniel chapter 3. The context is Babylon, which is the, the world power of the day. And Babylon has this strategy of subjugation by assimilation. In other words, they will go and use their military might to conquer a people, and then rather than just enslaving these people, they will take the best of the best, the artisans and the educators, the political leaders and the military leaders, they'll take the best of the best and they'll ship them back to Babylon. And there they'll educate them in Babylonian customs, they'll marry them into Babylonian families, and within a generation or two we find that they've become assimilated. They've adopted the culture and religion, the practices and the preferences of Babylon. Now, this is a a brilliant strategy and it's working remarkably well apart from with three pesky Israelites. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When we arrive on the scene, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, has erected an enormous statue. It is 90 feet high. So look up. It is Three times the height of our sanctuary. It is nine feet wide. You can imagine it towering before you. Now, he has then surrounded this statue with a worship team. He has a band and an organ and a drum kit and a pipe and apparently a bagpipe. That was random, right? Um, (laughs) A bagpipe. and, And here's the deal. Whenever the band strikes up, you fall on your face and you worship the image. And if you don't, you're thrown straight into a fiery furnace. Really simple arrangement. When you hear the music, fall on your face or you'll be in the fire. That is the order of the king. Now, everyone's playing along apart from our three friends. Though the king has told them to, though no doubt their peers have warned them to, and though of course the flames compel them to, they refuse to fall on their faces. Now, In verses 13 through 15, we see that this sends Nebuchadnezzar into a furious rage. He says, do you you know who I am? I am the king of the world. When I say fall on your face, you fall on your face. So listen, jokers, last chance. When the music plays, bow on your face or burn in the flames. Those are the options that are before you. Well, to our friends, look at verse 16. This command is, is laughable. Don't you love their response? King, uh, we don't even feel the need to give you an answer in this matter. (laughs) You may be king of the world, but bro, I'm not even taking your phone call, right? 
Uh, you think that we're going to defy the true God in order to obey you? No thanks. We're good. Well, this just makes Nebuchadnezzar lose his mind. Look at verse 19 through 23. He turbocharges his furnace. He wraps them up in flammables and he sends them to their cremation. But even as they're marched toward the flames, our friends remain unmoved. They have furnace faith. Faith that does not falter. Faith that refuses to compromise no matter what. Now, we see this kind of faith in Babylon, but we also see it throughout church history as well. I wonder if anyone has heard of Hein Sietzma. Yeah, me neither. Okay? But let me introduce you to him just now. Uh, during World War II, Hitler had promised to respect the neutrality of the Netherlands until, of course, he decided not to. And in 1940, he invaded Holland, and within five days, they had capitulated, at which point much of the population adopted a posture of compliance toward the Nazis. Many Dutch, of course, the majority of Dutch are are Aryan, and so they didn't face an immediate threat from Nazi persecution, and so they figured, hey, let's lie low, let's not rock the boat, let's wait this thing out. Only there was a segment of the Dutch population that wouldn't fare so well. At the beginning of the war, there were some 140,000 Jews in Holland. By the end of the war, 107,000 of them had been killed. The only reason some 30,000 survived was because of an underground resistance movement that sprung up, motivated often and operated by the Dutch church. And Hein Sietzma was one such Christian resistor. He was engaged to be married to the love of his life, a young woman called Diet Emmen. And the two of them got involved in this resistance movement. They would ship Jews off to countryside farms where they would hide them in attics or in cellars or even in caves. And then they would go and they would steal rationing cards so that they could get enough food to feed their stowaways. Well, eventually both Hein Sietzma and Diet Emmen were discovered. Diet's fiancé was sent to prison while Hein was sent to a concentration camp. A concentration camp in which he would die. Now, on his way, literally to the furnace, on his way to that camp, he penned a letter to Diet, his fiancée. He managed to get hold of a piece of uh, toilet paper, and on it he wrote this note before wrapping it carefully in brown paper, and then just throwing it out the window of the transport train that he was on. Well, by providence, someone picked it up, someone found it, mailed it, and it arrived to Diet, but by which time Hein was already dead. And so she carefully unfolded this brown paper to find this piece of tissue and the last words that he would ever say to her. Darling, he said, don't count on our seeing each other again soon. Here we see again that We do not decide our own lives. Darling, even if we don't see each other again on earth, we will never be sorry for what we did, that we took this stand, and know that of every last human being in this world, I loved you the most. 
Yeah, that is awesome. I love that. I love that because Nazi music plays and Heinz Seisman doesn't bow. Why? Because he bows only before Jesus, a decision he knows he will never regret. (laughs) Never regret. It's furnace faith. It's faith that does not falter. It's faith that refuses to compromise no matter what. Now, if we see it in Babylon and we see it in church history, so surely we need to see it today. Surely we need to see it today. Uh, We know, of course, that as we look at our culture, our our primary desire is, is to work for its welfare, to work for the welfare of this city in which God has placed us. And that's actually what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were doing. We read in verse 12 that they were kind of uh, presidential appointees working for the the welfare of public life in Babylon. And and that's primarily what what we want to do, to live and work and play in a way that makes public life better, that makes the world glad that we are here. But whenever and wherever we are tempted to falter, Whenever and wherever we are tempted to compromise in order to assimilate to this culture, we ourselves need furnace faith. Every culture that has ever been and every culture that will ever be places immense social pressure on believers to adopt the beliefs and the norms and the practices of it that are often inconsistent with our faith. Sometimes this is a kind of relational pressure. The world says it it doesn't matter if you marry someone who's of the same faith as you. And so you need furnace faith to remain single. Sometimes the world says divorce isn't that big a deal and you need furnace faith to stay married. Sometimes it's not relational pressure, it's more of a professional pressure. The culture tells you to succeed at all costs, to be ruthless, to run people over, to stab a colleague in the back. And you need furnace faith in order to have integrity in your workplace. Sometimes it's not relational or professional, it's just a kind of a peer pressure. We live in, in a culture that will celebrate the goodness of LGBT relationships. And you need furnace faith to be the outsider that insists that that's not God's good design for humanity. Or in a culture that says you can have your beliefs but just keep them to yourself. You need furnace faith to winsomely share the gospel. We could go on and on with examples of how our culture calls us to compromise. How our culture calls us to assimilate. I wonder where you feel this pressure. Where do you feel the pressure to falter, the pressure to compromise? Can I suggest that if, no, if you have no answer to that question, uh, you may have assimilated already. You may have assimilated already. The gospel calls us to a gentleness and a courageousness. We are to be a humble and yet bold people who bow, but only before Jesus. Only before Jesus, so that when we're tempted to falter, tempted to compromise, we have furnace faith. Faith that does not falter. Faith that will not compromise, no matter what. Furnace faith in Babylon, in history, today. Okay, but how do you get it? It sounds good. I like the sound of it. But where where does it come from? How do you have furnace faith? Let's... Look at two things in our text that that help us to have this kind of 
of courage, this kind of boldness in our God. The first thing we see from verses 17 and 18, how do you get furnace faith? Well, you understand firstly that furnace faith is faith in God. Faith in God. Now that sounds obvious. What, what do I mean by this? Well, look at verse 17 and 18. It gives us a profoundly nuanced understanding of faith. First of all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when told that they'll be thrown in the fire, say, if this is true, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. We believe our, you know, he says to them, you know, who will rescue you out of my hand? They say, well, we believe our God will, and we believe that, that he will. However, verse 18, but if not... Be it known to you, O king, I love these guys, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We believe our God can save us and we believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow and worship. In other words, you see that their confidence is not in a particular outcome. Their confidence is in God who will be sufficient for them either way. Their confidence isn't that they will die or, or not die. Their confidence is in the God who will be enough either way. See, many of us don't think of faith that way. We fall into thinking of faith as the means by which good things are going to happen. As the means through which certain outcomes can be guaranteed. So if you work up enough faith, you can do anything. Um, the quarterback can win that game. You can find a parking space. Um, if you have enough faith and just believe you'll, you'll get that job, you will be healed from that disease, work up enough faith and, and it will happen. But friends, what counts is not the intensity of your faith. What counts is the object of your faith. The object of your faith. You don't get furnace faith by having a huge amount of faith you get furnace faith by having faith in God. One pastor illustrates it this way. Imagine you're in charge of a football team and the championship game is coming and the week before the championship game, your quarterback gets injured. And then you're looking around, desperately trying to find someone to to replace him and, and someone offers you Tom Brady. And you say, I hate that guy. I have no faith in Tom Brady. You know, first of all, like, he's a patriot, and nobody likes the patriots. Secondly, um, you know, Deflategate, that whole deal, he's this, you know, pretentiously married to this German supermodel. The dude models Uggs. Are you kidding me, right? I have no faith in this guy. I am not going with Tom Brady, okay? Well, your other option is David Stevenson, okay? (laughs) And you say... I love David Stevenson. David Stevenson, he is such a good guy. He comes up here, he leads us so well, he's got integrity, he loves his wife, he's got a great family. He's our man, and if he can't do it, then no one can. Well, game day comes, and David's under center, and a 300-pound lineman comes to the middle and just crushes him. Okay? You look down, and like all his limbs are pointing in funky directions. Okay? And you say, I don't under- like what... I don't understand what happened. I had all the faith in the world in David. And we say, yes, you had a lot of faith. But you had a lot of faith in the wrong thing. 
You had a lot of faith in the wrong thing. If you'd had a tiny bit of faith in Tom Brady, you'd have won the game. You can have all the faith in the world in David. And it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> I quite enjoyed that illustration. <laughs> Apart from the fact that I've made Tom Brady like God. Don't like that part. Okay, I'll work on it for next week. What's the point? The point is, you don't have furnace faith by having a lot of faith. Work it up. Believe. Great things will happen. You have furnace faith by believing in God and you only need a little bit. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? You just need a mustard seed of confidence. That's all you need. A mustard seed of confidence, not in the outcome, but in God. It's not about the strength of your faith. It's about the strength of your God. And when you have just a little bit of faith in him, you can trust him with your life. Because you know what? Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God might deliver you from the flames, and you will awake tomorrow and continue to follow him. Or, like Heinz Sietzma, you might die in the flames and awaken his presence to enjoy him forever. And either way, you trust him. Either way, you trust him. You have furnace faith when your faith is in God. That's when your faith won't falter. That's when you'll refuse to compromise. Second thing we see in our text, how you have furnace faith. Yes, it's faith in God. But more than that, and might I say better than that, it is faith in the God who, number two, is with you. Faith in the God who is with you. Unsure of what the outcome will be, we see that our friends are indeed thrown in the furnace. And remember, they don't know the end of the story when this is happening to them. They're just brought near the flames. They feel it getting hotter. They're cast in. They don't know how it will end. And interestingly, the story is then told from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view. The camera angle switches and we see his fury turn into a kind of shock. First of all, he's shocked because he sees that these people are still walking around. And you can imagine his indignation. You know, they won't fall on their faces. They won't obey my command. Now they won't even die. I don't know what to do with these guys. But then he sees something else. More shocking even than that miracle. See, in verse 24, he, he stands and exclaims, Didn't we throw three men into the fire? His counselors respond, yeah, yeah, three. Who's three? And he says, verse 25, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And here's our close encounter. Our close encounter where God has appeared in the midst of the flames. He has brought his presence into their present. He has not spared them from the furnace, but he has joined them in it. And if we shift the camera angle back to the viewpoint of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, can you imagine the story from their perspective? Can you imagine what they must have felt, what they must have said when they walked into the flames and were met by none other than the living God? And can you imagine the the comfort and the security and the hope that would have brought them to be confronted by, faced with the God 
of all creation, giving them more than what they needed to persevere, to have furnace faith, to not falter, to refuse to compromise. That's furnace faith that comes when you believe in God who brings his presence into your presence. We know, of course, that it's not just these believers who have experienced this kind of presence. Let's go back to church history and to Deet Emin. Her fiancé dead at the concentration camp. She languished in a Nazi jail, filthy sanitation, food in short supply. Cold by day, even colder by night, uncertainty over the welfare of her loved ones, a thousand fears for tomorrow. And she took a bobby pin and carved into her cell wall graffiti in the name of Jesus. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus speaking to his people in Matthew 28, saying, I didn't just show up in Babylon. I'm showing up today. And tomorrow, and every tomorrow after that, so that you can have comfort and security and hope, so that you can persevere no matter what happens, so that you can have furnace faith. What was true in Babylon and what's been true in history can also be true for us today because the gospel comes and it speaks a word of intense challenge and then intense encouragement. The word of challenge is that, you know, friends, we we are also a people who have disobeyed the true king's command. And because of that, we truly deserve to be cast into a furnace, not the fires of Babylon, but even the flames of hell. That's what our sins deserve. But Christ was not content for his people to perish, and so he came and he entered that ultimate furnace on our behalf. And on the cross he was burnt to a crisp, utterly alone. And then he rose from the dead, conquering our ultimate furnace and promising to be with us now in the present. Lo, he says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And you will have furnace faith. You will not falter. You will refuse to to compromise to the degree in which you believe this promise. That he is with you even now. That having forgiven your sins, he is with you even now. So picture with me your your, your greatest struggle, your greatest fear, your greatest trial. What, what is it just now? Picture it with me as a furnace in Babylon. And picture yourself being thrown into the heart of it. And then picture your eyes lifting to see that meeting you there in that very place is Jesus as he promised that he would. It doesn't take away the trial. It doesn't take away the fire. But it gives you comfort. It gives you security. It gives you hope. It gives you the ability to persevere because he has brought his presence into your present. What kind of faith do you need to face the fiery furnace? You need furnace faith. Faith that doesn't falter. Faith that refuses to compromise. And in the gospel you can have it. By believing in the God who has promised to be with you. And so we see, do we not, that the gospel creates this beautiful dynamic. This beautiful dynamic whereby 
we can be the most bold, courageous, strong people on the face of the earth. And not because we ourselves are bold, courageous, or strong. Don't feel this morning that pressure of, you know, oh, I'm meant to be these things I'm not. No, you're meant to believe in the God who's everything we're not. And through that faith, and through the way in which he draws near, through his strength, through his boldness, through his courage, you'll find that you are able to have this kind of furnace faith. We all need it sooner or later. But in the gospel, we can have it even now. Amen. Let's pray together. Furnace faith that doesn't falter, that won't compromise. Uh, Lord, we know that we don't have the emotional resources in and of ourselves to work up this kind of intensity. And so we hear the good news of the scriptures. That it comes from believing in you and your presence with us. The things we can do through the gospel of grace. And so Lord be forming this kind of faith in us. We want to be um, humble, gentle, tender people. But the gospel also enables us to be that and to be bold, courageous, tenacious people. Do this work of grace in our hearts that we might be uh, tender-hearted beasts for your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.